Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. With many years' experience trading and risk-managing derivative exposures, Simon Ho is now the founder and CEO of T3 Index, a financial research and technology firm doing some interesting work in the arena of complex index and product construction. An avid user of VIX products during his time on the buy side, Simon loved everything about the CBOE suite of VOL products, but the cost to use them. He set out to create a similar but more economical product that could compete for the growing user base of investors who sought direct exposure to volatility. With this, Spikes was born, and so too began the journey for Simon and his team to bring a new volatility option and futures product to the market. Next, we explore the newest creation from T3, the Bitfall Index. Recognizing the interest from investors in trading volatility directly, Simon sees promise in an index that gives end users direct access to implied volatility in Bitcoin. While exploring this, we discuss the characteristics of all surfaces for assets like Bitcoin, drawing similarity to gold and also to volatility itself. Lastly, Simon is excited about T3's work on interest rate volatility, having developed an index he hopes will become a leading instrument to manage risk in this important asset class. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Simon Ho. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Simon Ho. He is the founder and CEO of T3 Index. It's a financial research and technology firm in Sydney, Australia, doing some very interesting things these days. Simon, it's great to catch up and thanks for being a guest today. Oh, likewise. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, it's fun to talk to someone on the other side of the world. And we were just catching up, of course, on the much better experience that Australia has had on the, on the vaccination front. And, you know, that's been, of course, one of the incredible stories over the last year and a half has this been this COVID and the disruption and all the volatility that resulted. And so, of course, you've got your hands in some very interesting products and indices that focus on volatility. We've seen our share of it over the last 18 months. So we'll get into that. As we get the conversation underway, it'd be great to learn a little bit more about your background, how you got interested in the wonderful world of high finance. Take us back to the beginning and in, in your early days in the industry. Wow. Yeah, it was certainly a very formative period for me at the end of university, because at the end of university, I did an economics degree and I wasn't exactly sure that I liked economics and that I wanted to do anything with that. So I used to go into the city and I would see we had a, an options trading floor that, that obviously that's a shame as far as I'm concerned that they don't exist more that they're not more prevalent than they are now. But back then, there were some in Sydney. We had a futures exchange and we had a separate designated open outcry options exchange. The first day I went down there, I took a look and I was just captivated immediately. I just thought, oh, this is awesome. This is what I have to do for the rest of my life. So, so far, that's what happened. So <laughs> I'm pleased to say that I've never deviated from it. I find the whole concept of options and nonlinear payouts and things like that is just really exciting. And it was it added an extra dimension to the knowledge that I had about regular economics and regular futures and stuff like that. So that's how it all started. And so I thought, well, I have to get me a job doing this. So I came in as an intern with JP Morgan based in Sydney in 95. So I'm, I'm pretty ancient now, but I was put on the FX desk 
And that was okay, but you know, it wasn't what I was sort of interested in and what I had seen, for example, on on the equity options floor. So as it happens, there's a guy called Phil Weisberg. He was very well known in the industry for a long time. He was the head of FX options business at JP Morgan globally. And he came down to Sydney to see the regional office and we started talking and I said, look, I really, really want to get involved in this. Um, Is that possible? So that's kind of how it all started. So at that point in 95, I moved to Singapore and started to trade options there. So that's pretty much how it started. And it has sort of changed over time in terms of the focus. But my love, my passion for this particular corner of financial markets hasn't waned at all. That's great. And certainly you had a front row seat there in the late 90s sitting in Singapore as to some of the epic vol that beset Southeast Asia in the late 90s with Asian contagion and, of course, followed up by the LTCM implosion. What were just in terms of some of the more formative episodes of risk that you traveled through in your career, taking us back a little bit? I mean, we don't see a lot of FX vol these days, that's for sure. But back in the late 90s, I know it goes back a bit, but Any remembrances of some of those seismic risk periods that we experienced? Oh, absolutely. I'm telling you the truth. I've got the hairs on my back are standing up because I was in charge of the regional currency options desk during that whole blow up. And I learned more in that few months than I have learned at any other stage in my life. It was just extraordinary. The stuff that happened was just not defined by textbooks. You know, you could not possibly know that sort of stuff. I mean, we had a position, we had a long Indonesian rupiah, but short um, Thai baht. And during the period of about four months, we made a hell of a lot of money. But in between times, we had enormous troughs as well. And it was just so ridiculous. Things were happening that were just outside of the framework of what a textbook would tell you. And so, Thankfully, touch wood, the reason I'm still in markets is because we managed to navigate that appropriately. We ended up making money net on the thing. The Indonesian book was very negative, but the Thai Baht sort of made up for that and then some. So yeah, that was just absolutely ridiculous. And I've never had anything before or after that that I could compare in any in any way. It was quite extraordinary. But it was also a fantastic learning period. Thankfully, we're in a situation where we can say that. I mean, there are obviously other people who completely blew up, which is unfortunate, but we were fortunate enough to come out of it, not only unscathed, but to have done it relatively profitably. Well, I teach a class on episodes of financial crisis and with a large sprinkling of option theory in there because options seem to be pretty close to the scene of the crime, oftentimes when there's a financial market blow up. And what is the first thing that Black Shoals teaches you, or at least its assumptions ask you to take on, or one that vol is constant through time? And so we'll talk a lot about the VIX index, and that doesn't seem to be the case with vol. And then, of course, that asset returns are normally distributed. And that Southeast Asia blow up will tell you otherwise, as will so many other events over the course of time. Take us further through your career, you know, through the tech bubble, through the global financial crisis. Where were you? during these periods? And how did you get to where you are now? Right. So after the Thai Baht situation and all of all of the goings on there, I'd spent a few years in Singapore. I really enjoyed my time there. And the, the group was very good. JP Morgan was an excellent firm to work for. But I wanted to go 
you know, to the hustle and bustle of New York. So when I first joined uh, JP Morgan, they had something called the MFP, which is the Morgan Finance Program. And this is this is a long time ago now. I'm not sure if it still exists, but basically people from all the offices around the world got together, congregated in the US and in New York, and essentially it was touted as sort of like a expedited MBA without the accounting sort of stuff. So that I found really exciting and it cemented my interest that I had to work in the US. So after I spent the time in Singapore, I moved, I was fortunate enough to move to New York and I was doing FX options there and mostly involved in the complex derivatives. But then I got an offer to join Goldman Sachs. And I thought, well, I'm not going to pass that up because even I knew at that point that, you know, that was a good shop to be at and they had a lot of flow and they were very technically advanced. So I actually moved to their London office and I was sort of the senior trader on the FX options desk for a number of years. And eventually after that, decided to move back home. When the move happened and I moved, came back here, it's sort of this in Australia, it just doesn't have the same sort of opportunities that you have in the US and in the UK. So that I was sort of concerned about. So we decided to set up a company where we actually offered services for clients. So, you know, we'd be running strategies, again, all revolving around volatility, the volatility landscape. So that was really good for a while. And then, you know, things were started to become very, very quiet. And so Ultimately, it's only about five years ago, we decided that we would venture out into the creation of indices. Now, the reason that we're doing that is because I've got a team of highly intelligent people, far more so than myself, who can do a lot of really interesting things. And the real catalyst for this was we have been heavy users of VIX contracts and options and, and futures for a long time. And it occurred to me that this was a kind of a monopolistic arrangement between S&P and, and the SIBO. And as a result of that, the fees for trading this product are exorbitant relative to other types of products. And so we said, well, look, why don't we maybe think about stepping into this space and being a disruptor in that market? And so it's taken a long time. It's been a long journey, but that's exactly what we've done with Spikes Futures and Options. We're trying to get in there and to say, well, look, we're the Pepsi to the Coke or whatever as it might be with the analogy. But, you know, there are certain things that we've been able to improve upon. I guess being a second mover, you have some advantages like that that happen just through gaining knowledge over time. And so that's kind of what we're focused on now. So we still offer clients specific services. So for example, Last year in February, when the whole blow up happened, you know, we made a pension fund in Australia like over 200%. So that was, they were pretty happy with that result, obviously, given what had happened. So we still do those things on a much lesser basis. But the focus for us these days is more about the creation of novel and not novel indices, basically. Yeah, I really think there's value to creating indices for complex products like you're doing. And so we'll talk a lot about. What you're up to in Spikes, taking on the behemoth in the room. Before we get into that, and again, also your development of other esoteric indices like the Bitfall Index, just given your tenure over the years in the senior level trading volatility, I would love to just have a broad back and forth with you about some of the, the questions that we all entertain in terms of the derivatives markets. And I don't think it's really an asset class question. It's really a derivatives question. And so maybe we'll start with this notion of vol risk premium. If you look at just about every asset class and you do a very simple time series of implied vol versus realized vol, you know, perhaps the premiums are bigger in some assets versus others, but there's by and large always a premium, right? There is this jump risk or this insurance premium 
that prevails, whether it's in the S&P or rates, FX, it's a, in some ways, I guess, what coaxes the option seller to come to the table. I'm curious just if you could share your thoughts on the notion of the vol risk premium. Why is it there? Is it monetizable? How do you think about it? How did you think about it in terms of you know, market making and running a book of Greeks in convexity? Yeah, that's a million dollar question right there. It exists for a reason. And there are so many smart people involved in this industry that if it weren't appropriate for there to be a volatility risk premium, then you know it would have been arbitraged away. But clearly, it's been consistent throughout decades now. So it's one of those things where, yeah, it does catch some, especially new people to the industry, it might not fully understand those concepts and may not take them into consideration as perhaps they ought to. But certainly it's real. At the end of the day, most people would like to earn the volatility risk premium. And so they do that. But of course, as we know, every now and again, you get an eruption of some sort, and that basically takes away all of the profits that you've earned over that time. I remember someone describing it to me when I was first on the desk, and they would say that, you know, it's like you've got a steamroller in front of you. And, and, and that's, you know, it's the relationship between the risk and the reward. And so you still see that today, but you also see episodes like February 2018, for example, when the, one of the VIX ETPs sort of blew up. LTCM was another very important one, of course, the Asian financial crisis. So it does appear intermittently, and you've got to be skillful enough or mindful enough to know when the signs are there for something that is disruptive, in which case, obviously, you wouldn't want to take advantage of the volatility risk premium. But yeah, it is something that is much studied, and it is something that is very important. But I think what happens is that psychologically, you can go for periods, and you, you mentioned it in FX. FX is a very quiet market these days relative to what it was sort of 20 years ago. You get lulled into thinking that the volatility risk premium is there, and it's going to be there forever, and it's a big enough cushion. But that doesn't turn out to be the case. So in our case, we set up our structures such that we will make out in the event of something happening. But of course, the challenge there is how can you hold that and still be profitable? Because for the most part, volatility is priced higher than the realized. So that's a challenge and it's an ongoing challenge. And it's one that I think you could have a million and one resolutions or remedies for that. But it's something that you have to be mindful of all the time when trading volatility. You mentioned LTCM, and of course, that is a while ago. And so a lot of new traders or investors in the market, that's ancient history to them. There's perhaps not an appreciation for just how big that risk event was. The Fed had to bring the big banks to the table. And in the aftermath of LTCM, there was this quote from one of their partners who essentially, Victor Hagani, was drawing the distinction between hurricane insurance and financial market insurance. And I've used this many times, and I think it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about, which is Mother Nature is indifferent to risk-taking in the reinsurance market, right? She doesn't know. It just is. Financial markets are feedback loops, right? And so the positioning really matters in the markets when people get either too big on one side, right? It's all about the reckoning when things turn out not to be as expected. And of course, with short volatility, that adjustment can be dramatic and swift in form. When you were trading FX options, did you tend to run your book from the long side of volatility, from the short side? Did you try to be balanced? How did you think about that? Oftentimes, I did work for a few different shops and their mantras were quite different. But 
the most common thing would be for us, and this is just a generalization, of course, but we'd be long sort of middle of the curve and we'd be short the front end because, you know, we felt that obviously there were lots of people looking at the book. So there were three different global centers and it would be passed around during the course of the day to cover effectively the 24 hour time zone. And typically that's the thing that we would employ because volatility in general, especially back then, 20 years ago, it had a slightly larger vol risk premium associated with it than it might do now, just because of the, the nature of the change in the dynamics. But yeah, we often found that if we wanted to be short gamma, because we know that for the most part, being short volatility is a good thing until such time as it blows up and you lose everything that you made and then some. So that was the way that we would sort of navigate that. We would try and have sort of midterm long position and short front end. Of course, that wasn't always the case, but that was kind of often how we were set up. And it seemed to work because you had something there that could protect you in the instance where things went pear-shaped. Well, now that's a great time to segue into talking about the VIX and spikes because you mentioned the term structure and contango. So that's something pretty prevalent in terms of the shape of the S&P vol term structure. So you've really done something interesting here, and I want you to walk us through, you referenced it a little bit before, but just how you got to look at the VIX product, the VIX market, and get interested in developing something that really sat or is sitting alongside it just with different cost economics. Walk us through when you started this project with Spikes and just love to learn a little bit more about this this adventure you've been on. Yeah, well, you've summed it up nicely. It has been an adventure, frankly. Like when I first was exposed to VIX, I thought, oh my goodness, this is like the best thing I've ever seen. Because although I was a volatility trader in FX, at that point, there was no no product such as VIX. So you, you would ascertain or you would end up with a position where you might say, you know, you might buy a straddle or, or sell a straddle, for example. And that was the only way that you could really get an exposure to vault. Whereas here it is discrete. And now you have options over that thing as well. I mean, it was mind blowing to me. It was just absolutely awesome. So as I mentioned earlier, we've been involved in the VIX market for a long time, but ultimately one of the things that we noted was that, at least from our point of view, there are a couple of deficiencies that we thought we might be able to improve on, as is sort of most common with products. You know, they tend to evolve and they get better because of input from others. But in this case here, we thought that we could do things that could improve upon it. But more importantly was the fact that the product itself is actually relatively expensive. And that there was a real reason for that. And that is that it was so popular that, you know, you're going to charge high price for it. So we looked at the economics of it and thought, well, you know, the average clearing fee for a stock option in the US is around six cents. For VIX, it's 71 cents. So it's fully 10 times the cost of doing business anywhere else. And so we thought, gee, that's, I mean, good luck to them. You know, if you can get a product that is so good and, and it's in demand and you're the only one, then of course you can charge whatever the hell you want. But as it turns out, we thought, well, we want to come in and step in as being an alternative. So as I said earlier, the Pepsi to the Coke type thing. And one of those things that we could do was to better, tighter, cheaper, faster was kind of how we referred to the concept going in when we were trying to do this. So essentially, Vixen Spikes has a correlation of over 99% to one another. So they are economically fungible. There are some slight differences, of course, because we use SPY as the underlying, and SPY has a, a dividend in it each quarter. And so there is a slight adjustment that needs to be made once a quarter to take that into consideration. But ultimately, the idea was, well, why don't we make it better 
tie the cheaper faster and see what happens. And so that's kind of what we're, we're doing now. We're, we're trying to see what we can do in this space. We've obviously slashed the cost of doing business, which I think is appealing to most investors around the world. If you can do something cheaper, why not? But that's also led to a whole bunch of other things. So that was the primary focus for us for quite a long time. We did have some regulatory hurdles that we had to overcome. But yeah, I mean, we are really pleased with what we've been able to achieve so far. We are really at the beginning of this journey, but we're very positive that this should resonate with investors. Well, the VIX is one of these very few products that's really a a kind of a miracle outcome. There's so many products that are created. What is it? Maybe 95% of them. They just don't ultimately gather enough liquidity for them to be meaningful and viable. So there's a lot of experimentation with things like ETFs that just, again, ultimately don't stand the test of time. And the VIX is one of these. And as you noted, it just became bigger and bigger, not just with the futures, but especially the options, You know, so much so that oftentimes it is a tail wagging the dog where the positioning really is what's moving volatility rather than volatility, you know, moving positioning. And it's just fascinating that you've come about to, again, create spikes. The process of gaining liquidity is incredibly important. You create the index, but now you've got to find avenues for the liquidity. How did you set about in terms of the market making side? Walk us through that next step after the product's been designed, that next step of trying to access uh, liquidity, having a designated market participant to make prices. Walk us through that part. Yeah, that has been quite a challenge. So the first thing that we needed to do after coming up with the idea, we thought, well, okay, how are we going to deploy this? So the next thing we needed was to have an exchange partner. So it was a long-winded affair, but we ended up with the folks at MyX. I've got to say that they've just been absolutely fantastic to work with, really super professional. And without them, none of this would have happened. So we found an outlet for that. Ultimately, so we actually launched Spikes Options, if you can believe it, without any futures. So this was sort of a before our sort of regulatory hurdle that we had to overcome. But essentially, you know, we were, there was one month, I think we did 150,000 Spikes Options with no futures whatsoever. So there was no way to hedge them or anything. And yet we still did, you know, really decent volumes. But clearly we knew that we needed the futures and that's just a a no-brainer. You're going to have to need to have the underlying in order for this to be successful. And so MyX has been incredibly diligent about it and they have put together a very fantastic liquidity pool provision program. So Spikes Futures have grown from strength to strength as a result of that and they continue to. Obviously, we're starting from a much lower base, but, you know, at least there's there's good market making being made around them. And obviously that's a prerequisite really. If you re- if you want to get everything else liquid and create ETFs, for example, like you mentioned earlier uh, on the back of this, then you're going, it all starts with a liquid futures contract. So it has certainly been a challenge. It's a challenge like no other that I've kind of faced, but getting this to the point that we are at the moment has taken a lot of effort, very collaborative as well. My ex had, if we want futures, of course, we need a futures exchange and they didn't have one. So they bought the Minneapolis Grain Exchange for us to do that. So it's a humongous commitment on their part. And frankly, you know, I think that we will prevail in the long run. I think we've got a very good product. We're getting much more interest from people around the world. And we have a very good quorum of folks who are making liquidity for us. Well, VIX futures and options are valuable and they are costly. And so it's excellent to see another option, literally, in the market doing that. I notice as well that you've 
not just create spikes, which you're going to have to fill us in for what that acronym is, but you have V spikes as well. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about Volaval and just maybe some of what you guys have learned along the way in your index construction efforts and your research process. Tell us what SPIKES stands for. SPIKES, well, actually, it's unfortunately less exciting than you might otherwise think. We were, were thinking of a name and SPIKES came to us simply because volatility tends to spike. I mean, that's part of its nature. And so we thought, well, we're using the underlying as well, which is SPK. And so that kind of also seems a bit like spike. That's the actual ticker now of the thing. So yeah, it's unfortunately maybe less interesting than, than you might have thought. But you know, we had to come up with something that was differentiated, but also that embodied kind of the product. Got it. Yeah. For some reason, I thought it was an acronym, but no, obviously the, the spiking characteristics of VOL makes a lot of sense. And then what about Volaval? That's gotten a lot of attention over the last, again, 18 months, just to, the surge in the VIX brought the Volaval to an enormous level. You know, Simon, I remember looking probably in those really ugly days of mid-March of 2020 and looking at the price of VIX options that were still incredibly far out of the money. You know, the 140 strike call, the VIX was maybe at 80. That had a lot of value. And incredibly, so did the 40 strike put. So the distribution of outcomes was just remarkably wide, you know, both to the upside and the downside. And that's that your V spikes index, I'm sure, reached an all time high at that point in time. But what, what have you and team learned about Falaval, the nature of it and the measurement of it? Be curious to, to learn a little bit more about your work there. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a very interesting topic. So we have something called the V spikes. So, you know, no surprise, you've got spikes and we've got V spikes. So it should be pretty obvious to people when we launch that. So that that's going to be coming live relatively soon. So V spikes was designed slightly differently than VVIX because it's only my opinion is that there's, there's a shortcoming to VVIX in that it uses the methodology that you use, which is the underlying variant swap formula which heavily weights the downside. Now, of course, that doesn't really make any sense if you're talking about a vol of vol metric because the skew is to the upside. So we've taken care of that issue and I think it's a more meaningful measurement now because it's in the appropriate direction. So we use something called a simple variant swap to make sure that we could do this properly. So a simple variant swap is to simply to get a whole strip of options from the highest calls to the lowest puts and you weight them evenly. Whereas with a variant swap, because of the skewed nature of equities to the downside, it's not even. It's actually one over the square root of the strike, which effectively gives a greater amount of weighting to the very low delta put options. So there's, I think, a fairly big difference and a big differentiation between the, say, the VVIX and the V spikes. So, but at the end of the day, these are just measures, you know, they aren't tradable. Doesn't mean to say that at some point in the future, it can't be, frankly. If you look at the behavior of V-spikes, I think it's eminently futurizable, if that's a word. Yeah, listen, Volaval is this unseen but not untraded asset class. And of course, it takes complexity to a, <laughs> a new realm when you're trading you know, a future on volatility of volatility. You'd be hard-pressed to explain that to someone outside the business, <laughs> but this is what we do. Have you spent any time on the SIBO skew index? That's gotten some recent attention as it reached an all-time high. Is that something you've looked at? 
Yes, we have looked at that. Because we're the newest new player, I suppose, the newbies in this space, we kind of want to focus on our knitting a little bit to make sure that we're getting futures liquidity up and running, options and stuff like that. But certainly that is an area of interest intellectually. But for the time being, I guess we're focused on the sort of bigger fish, the things that we need to sort of take care of sooner as opposed to those things that could be done at a later stage. Of course. No, totally understand. Well, well, let's shift to Bitfall. This is truly innovative, and I've been following this closely. You and I have talked about your work here a couple of times now. So give us a background on how you approach this and what you've done in this new complex index. Yeah, thank you for bringing this one up. I find this particularly interesting, I guess, because it's novel, it's new, but obviously we have drawn upon our experience in the creation of volatility indices in general to help build this as well. So there was no volatility index, or not, not a well-established one at least, that we're aware of. So we decided to make one. So we've made a volatility index, very akin, I suppose, to spikes and index. So we did that for Bitvol. We've also done it for Ethereum because both of those two underlying coins are very liquid. We get the data supply from a number of exchanges around the world to ensure the robustness of it. And yeah, we thought, well, why not? I mean, if, if volatility trading, which has absolutely burst onto the scene from the early 2000s, and it's now one of the most dominant products on the planet, why wouldn't people be interested in volatility in this space as well in crypto, especially given the amount of attention that there seems to be in that market. And the other thing about it is that it's, it has a lot of ups and downs, and that makes it kind of very interesting for people who want to trade this. So we put those two together. We have, I think it's more than a two-year history of the index. It's calculated in real time, 24-7, 365. In fact, there's only one point in any given week where I think it's 8 a.m. UTC, where basically people you know restart their technology and it goes again. But otherwise, yeah, it's it's up all the time. It's being pumped out in millisecond intervals for that the whole week, except for that small down period where people reboot the, the systems. So I thought it made perfect sense for us to delve into this place. We like volatility as an asset class. We know how successful that has been. And frankly, this is a great tool for people to use in the crypto complex because ultimately we've seen how well it's worked in equities. There's no reason why it can't do the same here. So we actually have done several trades now in the OTC arena. We are working with Ledger X to get them listed on Ledger X at some point in time. That's not imminent, but it is something that's certainly on the agenda. But yeah, it's garnered a lot of interest. Of all of the products that we've ever launched, the most emails and connections that I've had has been about Bitfall. It's been astonishing. The U.S. listed options market has got prices pumped into it every second from Opera. And just curious on the actual formulation of the index in terms of extracting the data feeds. This seems like a more complicated project. I believe you're taking feeds from more than one exchange. I know that those exchanges are, there's a couple of them, one of which dominates. Tell us about the kind of guts of constructing this index in terms of the the technology lift that you guys had to pursue. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, ultimately, this thing is very different than most any other index that you would pump out simply because of the massive amount of data that comes in. It's just, it's a torrent, literally a torrent all the time. So for that, there were certainly some challenges that we had to overcome, technically speaking, because we had to ensure that we were getting all of it, that none of it was being missed, that it was all in order, you know, those kinds of things. So they continue to be something that we need to keep an eye on just because of the sheer volume of flows that come through and ticks. So yeah, it was a challenge. Initially, we're not a tech firm per se, but you know, we have some very skilled technical people, but even they had to deal with a flow of ticks as rapid as we're seeing it now. But fingers crossed, we haven't really had an outage now for quite some time, for several months. And so it's working very well and pretty swimmingly. And it seems like there's a lot of interest for people to want to trade it. In fact, even just recently, the folks at Iceberg Capital signed up to do it. We've had some crypto funds from around the world, US and others who have done trades as well. So yeah, it's exciting. And I think given the success of the VIX complex, I don't see why the same shouldn't prevail here. Well, if you're dealing with S&P or SPY options, price discovery is reasonably instantaneous. In the case of Bitcoin, even as the options market is growing quite nicely, you do have that potential for stale data. Tell us about some of the challenges there, just in terms of you've got this formulaic approach to constructing the index, essentially using that variance swap methodology that the spikes, for example, uses but you don't have the same amount of frequency of trades by strike. What are some of the adjustments or things that an index provider like you needs to pay attention to on that front? Yeah, that's a very good question. So that's part of the reason why we're connected to four different exchanges in order to get the data. And we also, we effectively filter it as it comes through to us too. So, you know, you try and throw out those outliers. They're the sort of things, I mean, that one has to do. The problem for us here is just the speed with which we get information. And so sometimes that in the past can be overwhelming. And by virtue also of the fact that we use the simple variant swap methodology for this as well, makes things a little easier too. Because if you are heavily weighting and in crypto, I'm not sure it's necessarily understood which way it should be skewed, but I would imagine up, if anything. And so doing it with a traditional approach, like what it is for the VIX, for example, where it's one over the square root, that wouldn't really be applicable here. So we decided to go with the simple variant swap here as well, just like we do with the V-spikes, just because it makes it a little bit easier to calculate. And also, you're not so reliant on a particular side of the market either. So it's it's more generic. That's the way we've approached it. And touch wood, it's, it's been working to date. I was looking at Bitcoin option volumes recently and open interest, and it's just interesting to see how it really reached an apex just as the price reached an apex. And so as we're down almost 50% from that unreasonable high, it got there very, very quickly and the sharp swings up were pretty dramatic. But option volume seems to have come down. Some of the skew metrics that we look at have started to flatten out a little bit. So it's like the market is reacting to the behavior of the asset. I looked at 10-day realized volatility is only 47%, which is pretty low for Bitcoin. What do you observe just in terms of option volumes and just by strike? Are there any trends that you see in terms of where folks tend to concentrate their either put volume or call volume? 
I know less about that simply because we look at it in aggregate, you know, because ultimately we're trying to make a volatility index out of it. We have nothing really to do with the options other than using them as an input, of course, for that. So I must say I, I haven't given too much attention to that simply because we take the feed as it is. We obviously deal with outliers, remove those that obviously look dodgy or, or wrong. So we curate it, but we don't go in there to sort of specifically target anything, you know, or to look at, of course, we look at the underlying options. I mean, that's part of our job is when we we're formulating this index was to figure out, well, what strikes should we be using? How many should we be using? All those kinds of conditions were discussed. But yeah, it's not like we know a lot specifically about individual strikes. It's just everything that comes in and it's all sort of fairly formulaic in terms of how we consume it. Totally. The Bidval index has seen a couple of trades go up. So tell us about the first one and how that came to be, to the extent, of course, it's, it's public, but uh, just be great to share with our listeners this really you know, first of its kind trade in an index that specifically is calculated off of Bitcoin option prices. Yeah, it was a very interesting exercise. So we had a customer who was interested in getting long volatility in Bitcoin. And so happily, we have an index that can take care of that. As you noted, the realized vol, I think you said, was only about 45. And for the most part, since the index has been pumping, it's in the vicinity of usually 100. And that's for Bitcoin. And ETH vol is typically higher than that again. Now, I think as we've had sort of this sort of more moderate decline, I suppose it makes sense that volatility would have fallen down. Anyway, getting back to the original question that you had is, we had a customer who wanted to buy volatility, but wanted to have there be some sort of protection as well. So we essentially structured it so that he would be buying calls and he was funding that to some degree with selling put spreads. So it was actually a call spread and a put spread. So that was kind of the trade, the first trade that we put on. And it was pretty awesome. I mean, it was just happenstance really, but at the end of the day, vol absolutely surged. And I think ETH vol went to about a high of 177 or near, it, was, it was really nearly 200. And of course, the bit vol version, which they did, was slightly lower. But yeah, it still worked out well for them. And hopefully that means that they'll be coming back regularly. What do you see as the areas to focus on in terms of the growth of the market, specifically, let's say in Bitcoin and Ethereum from an options trading standpoint? Are these regulatory hurdles, technology hurdles, are they end user education hurdles, some combination thereof? What are, what are the things that matter most to you in terms of seeing this market progress? Right. So my focus is squarely on trying to identify people who might want to trade this kind of a product. And as I mentioned to you earlier, in terms of all the products we've ever had, this is the one where we get inundated with the most requests for information. So clearly there is an interest in this asset class and particularly in in volatility. So yes, of course, you can trade volatility via options, but now you actually have an actual vol index where you don't have to take care of you know, accumulating all of the necessary options that you would need and so on. So it makes life a lot easier for someone who just has a straight up view on volatility. So in this particular world, although volatility is expressed on both sides of the distribution, typically it's moves up that you've seen the more volatile action take place. So I think this is interesting because you have a corollary in the market. You have people who understand what volatility indices are, and we're offering options, puts and calls over this index and also the futures as well. It's basically a forward. It is all OTC at the moment, though. That's one sort of limitation, I suppose, because if it was on exchange, it would be slightly better. But 
yeah, that's kind of the focus. And I'd say that it's a sort of thing where this is a pretty explosive product, right? So people need to be cognizant of what they're doing. But you typically find also that it's the more sophisticated who actually reach out on these kinds of things anyway, because they understand construction and so on a bit better. So our goal here is really to advertise it, to get more people interested. And to that end, you know, we're talking to lots of people who are end users. Most of them are only able to do it OTC because we can only offer it this way for the time being. But, you know, as you mentioned before, FX is an entirely OTC product, essentially, or for the most part. So it doesn't stop people being interested to trade that product in that sense. So why should it prohibit people from doing it in this one? So yeah, it's a little bit more complex, I suppose, simply because it is a straight out volatility derivative as opposed to a part of that that's constructed with it. But we've been very buoyed by what we've seen so far and hoping to add to the product suite as well. Well, you mentioned, uh, I think, that the skew can be towards the call, that the implied vol is in some ways correlated to the direction of the underlying. And there's not a lot of assets for which that applies. You know, you might put gold in that category. Volatility itself is probably in that category. And I would just argue that assets that have an upward sloping call skew, you know, that the out of the money call has a higher vol than the at the money option are just interesting products and they aren't like the S&P. And I think that becomes a big part of why people are and probably should be interested in in Bitcoin because it's different. It's unique. You know, I was looking at the correlation, for example, of gold to the S&P, and it comes and goes. It's not really reliable, but over the recent period, it's kind of high and positive. And Bitcoin's a little bit positive, but not as positive. And I would say that this search for diversifying assets is a critical thing for investors, and maybe Bitcoin solves some part of that portfolio construction conundrum many people find themselves in. Yeah, I agree. And that's why having more such products is good. You also could throw oil in there as well, I think, because it tends to have a skew to the upside as well. But as you say, they're kind of few and far between, especially given the world's focus on equity type stuff. So, but yeah, I think this is truly interesting and it may not last forever, but it can be skewed up and down in this case, right? Whereas with for most things, it's either down or it's up. But here in, in crypto world, it can be up and down, which is pretty interesting as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about its younger brother or cousin, Ether. What have you learned about Bitcoin and Ether just in terms of their characteristics sitting next to each other? Are they very correlated? Do you notice that these, not just the asset prices themselves, but the vols, is there a directional component to them moving together? What's your research shown on that front? Yeah, well, so certainly correlated to one another. Really, for whatever reason, ETH outperforms in terms of the magnitude of the gains and losses. So it's more volatile than Bitcoin. So those two observations are very sort of strong. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with whether it's going up or down. It's really the speed with which the action is taking place. So whether it's going up or down, fast or slow, that's going to make the difference as to how it's impacted on the vol side. But I would say that more often than not, I think my skew would be slightly to the upside. So if if everything that I have seen so far, and look, my history isn't that long, but frankly, you know, crypto hasn't been around that long either, really. I think it's more powerful to the upside than it is to the downside in general. That's just a personal observation. So the correlation between the two assets is higher as the assets are moving up? Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. You've done some other work on other 
indices in the fixed income space. You've got yield vol product. I'm just very interested in this, the creation of indices that help us understand volatility and risk better. What have you done on on the rate side in terms of some of the VIX-like products, I'll call them, from a volatility standpoint? Yeah, right. So this is a very interesting space for us. We've been working on this. Of all of the projects that we've been working on, this is the one that has consumed the most amount of time. But I do think it's kind of essential. And so I think it will be very important for people in terms of their capacity to hedge, but also to assume risk. So yield vol, as the name suggests, is the volatility of yields. So like spikes, like VIX, it's a similar thing. It's a volatility derivative. And we have been working with Bloomberg for over four years to get this up and running. It's an extremely exciting initiative. Other folks have tried and failed to do this over the past 30 years, as it happens. So it's not like it's a new concept, but I think it's been difficult for people to actually get it up and running. So Yield vol is going to be live very shortly. So, you know, keep your eyes out and ears open for that because I think this will be a, ultimately will be a really good tool for the market because just as VIX has become de rigueur, everybody trades it. I'm pretty sure this has the capacity to do that as well. If you look at BIS statistics, for example, the biggest market is, is the swaps market by far. So there are a lot of people who are exposed to rates and this is going to be an important adjunct to their toolkit, if you like. And people, as I say, the people are used to trading volatility as a distinct asset class, whereas, say, 25 years ago, that they weren't. And so I think the transition should be relatively smooth, simply because there are so many people who are exposed to rate volatility. And yeah, so that thing hopefully should be launching next month. If you step back and you think about the circumstances under which our global markets would be in a very compromised situation, it would be one at least from my perspective, where implied volatility in developed bond markets exploded. It would suggest something about a change, either welcome or forced upon them in terms of the central banks. You know, perhaps they're fighting inflation that was just completely unexpected, and their promises to markets are no longer money good. And that's where you get a real expansion of interest rate implied vol. And that would just would seem to be a pretty difficult circumstance for equity market investors. So that's really interesting. Where are the price feeds coming from in generating the calculations? Are those OTC price feeds or are they from the futures options market? No. So it's the first. It's over-the-counter swaptions trades. That's the biggest market in the world. So if you want to get the most accurate reading, then that's where you have to go to get that information. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well. As you think about the next number of years in terms of what you're interested in, what your team has got the expertise to develop, and then setting that against, of course, your primary objectives of bringing liquidity to some of the indices you've already created, what excites you as you think forward in terms of new product development, what the market may not necessarily have in its hands from a suitability standpoint? What are some of those things that you're thinking about? Now, that's a really good question because I've been so fixated on a few products for many years that I wonder you know, how good I am at, at spotting the new things, right? Because I've been so focused, so tied up in this thing. But to be honest with you, it actually is more easy and it comes more easily than I sometimes anticipate. So 
obviously I'm looking around at the world, see what's going on, see what the flavor of the month is. Do we think this is a lasting premise? Is it something that we want to invest time and effort and money on? So all those things go rattling around your head when you're trying to think about what to do in terms of the next steps and what new products we could design. One of the things that I've found extraordinarily interesting recently, and it was, I mean, I must say, I don't, I'm no expert in this, but I have really enjoyed and have been fascinated by what I'm learning about in the DeFi space. So there's a lot of stuff I think that we can do there. We're also working with LedgerX to help them launch perpetual contracts. Now, these are ubiquitous in the unregulated world, but the uniqueness about this will be that LedgerX is the only CFTC approved US crypto exchange. So we have something very interesting in in that, in terms of that property, because it's going to give us access to perpetual contracts, which, as I said, they do trade obviously a lot everywhere else, but not so much on continental USA. So I think that will be a hugely interesting product for people going forward. But so much innovation is going on in the DeFi space. As I said, I can't even keep up with it all. It's just astonishing the stuff that's going on. But certainly that's an area where I think that we will want to focus on now because of just the the amount of ingenuity going on in there and the amount of energy that's associated with it. I think it's a, a good time for us to look at those parts of the world as well. Well, we look forward to keeping in touch. And as you develop Again, your existing suite of products, which I find very interesting. The Bitval one, I think, holds a lot of promise. And as new problems and opportunities are created, I'm sure you'll have your hands full in in terms of trying to bring products that address those issues to market. So, Simon, it's been excellent to chat with you today, and I do appreciate you being a guest on our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.